You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Listeners to episode 20 of the Book of Nature podcast, a podcast hosted by three Christians who work in the sciences and enjoy talking about all things sciency. With me today is Dan Dawson, assistant professor in the atmospheric sciences at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. How's it going over there, Dan? It's actually looking like winter out there for once. Oh, okay. Yeah, we had uh, one of those uh, Saskatchewan screamers come down here yesterday and actually overachieved. I was expecting maybe an inch out of it. We got more like three and a half inches of snow. It's actually okay. quite pretty. Oh. So I'm, oh, so I'm happy. Is, so this is my fault. Oh, yeah. But no, yeah. no, no, no. It's, it's, uh, I, I appreciate the, uh, the gift. Actually, I, <laughs> um, it may have actually come from Alberta, you know, or Manitoba. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. But it's, I had, I'd have to go back and trace the origins of this system. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we call them, uh, uh, these kind of storms that come down from the northwest, uh, variously Alberta clippers, uh, uh, Manitoba maulers, or Saskatchewan screamers. So, um, depending on their origin. So, those would be good names for hockey teams. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, I'm I'm happy because I like I like snow. I like my four seasons, and this winter has been underwhelming so far. So, yeah, doing mm-hmm. well. All right. Yeah, we've got a. Uh... <coughs> Uh, we, we've got some nasty cold wind going on over here. We, it was mild for a while, but uh, now we got that kind of wind where uh, you step outside to just uh, go check the mailbox and your eyeballs start to freeze. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that I can do without. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Okay. All right. Okay, so, and I am back. Back from my exclusive three-year tour of Europe, Scandinavia, and the subcontinent, I am Charles Hackney, Associate Professor of Psychology at Briarcrest College and Seminary, located in the grim, dark, cyberpunk urban wasteland of Karenport, Saskatchewan. Uh, Sadly, Todd is not joining us uh, today. Uh, Schedules happened. Uh, And I clearly have no experience with that uh, and cannot relate. Uh, since scheduling stuff never happens to me. Oh, me neither. I'm just yeah. got loads of time all the time. And, you know, as like Michael Farmer was saying, you know, we're, we, we professors, we only work like, you know, 15 hours a week. So anyway. Oh, yeah. yeah so, yeah. 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 No, no. My scheduling has been kind of crazy this uh, semester so far because I um, actually my second child was just born on January 1st. Um, Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and uh, it was the first baby born at the hospital there, so we got on the TV, on the news and everything. Okay. So that, that was fun. Uh, f- um, but, Did yeah. Did you sleep yet? Uh, you know, it's it's not so – I mean, this the second time around, it's you kind of know more what to expect, so it's a, it seems to be a lot smoother this time. But just having to take – you know, taking the parental leave, which is great. You know, I'm, I need that. But um, right. having to compress – all of my schedule up and it's been kind of uh kind of uh frustrating to got lots of stuff piled up on me but yeah 
be that as it may, we totally understand when folks, all three of us can't make it, um, that's going to happen fairly frequently given the nature of our work. So. Yep. So. All right. Uh, so for today's topic, uh, we are responding to a suggestion that was submitted to us by uh, one of our listeners. Uh, so if there's anyone else who uh, wants to suggest topics, uh, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, you can email us at bookofnaturepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, listeners can also leave comments at the website, which is christianhumanist.org. So our topic for today is war. But not just any war. Uh, what it is, is it good for? Sorry. Well, we'll see what uh, what one guy th- thinks it's good for. <laughs> so this is not just any war. It is the eternal war. It is the war that never ends. Yes, it goes on and on, my friends. I speak, of course, about the war between science and religion. To launch us into this topic, we will focus our attention on the writings of the 19th century figure Andrew Dixon White, uh, especially his influential two-volume History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom. <coughs> so, uh, we'll start a bit with a bit of backstory. Uh, Andrew Dixon White's an interesting character, and uh, he was born in 1832 in Homer, New York. Uh, which is a small town about 35 miles south of Syracuse, uh, which is where my father's from. Uh, He came from a farming family. Uh, They struggled with poverty uh, after a fire destroyed the farm. His father uh, worked hard to recover from the loss and provide for for the family, uh, eventually becoming successful in business and finance. Uh, Andrew enrolled in Geneva College, uh, which we now know as uh, Hobart and William Smith Colleges, Uh, Later transferred to Yale, uh, where he was a member of the Skull and Bones. So we can go conspiracy theory on this one also. Uh, After he graduated, uh, White traveled and worked around Europe. Uh, Later he returned to Yale uh, for a master's in history. Uh, Then from uh, 1858 to 1863, he served as a history professor at the University of Michigan. Uh, before returning to Syracuse, where he was elected to the New York Senate, uh, New York State Senate. Uh, so, using a combination of uh, government money and uh, some money donated by fellow state senator Ezra Cornell, uh, White founded Cornell University, uh, which is in Ithaca, New York, uh, about sixty, I think, you know, fifty or sixty miles uh, from Syracuse. <coughs> uh, White served as president of the university from 1866 to 1885. Uh, And from its founding, he intended Cornell to be rather different uh, from other universities. Most of the universities at the time were established uh, uh, originally as religious training centers. Uh, White, on the other hand, announced uh, that Cornell would be, I'm quoting here, an asylum for science where truth shall be sought for truth's sake. With a capital S. That's right, science with a capital S. Um, So, truth shall be sought for truth's sake, not stretched or cut exactly to fit revealed religion. With capital R's. That's right. Uh, So, yes, it's interesting to see what gets capitalized and what does not get capitalized. 
Uh, also in his career, uh, White was active as a, a diplomat. Uh, he served as U.S. ambassador to Germany from 1879 to 1881. Um, while after leaving Cornell, uh, White was the ambassador to Russia. Uh, 1892, 1894, 1899, he was the president of the American delegation to the Hague Peace Conference, uh, and he served again as ambassador uh, to Germany, 1897 to 1902. Uh, in uh, 1890, uh, White married his second wife, Helen McGill, uh, his uh, first wife had passed away, Helen McGill, uh, who was herself an academic, uh, holding the distinction of being the first woman to earn a Ph.D. in the United States. Uh, she got a Ph.D. in Greek from Boston University in 1877. Now, uh, in 1874, White gave a lecture entitled The Battlefields of Science, in which he laid out his argument that religion has a nasty habit of interfering with science, to the detriment of both. Uh, this argument was later expanded into a short book, uh, The Warfare of Science, and then later into a gigantic two-volume doorstopper, The History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom. Okay, so Dan, uh, bearing in mind we will not be devoting this episode to a verbatim reading of all 930-something pages of White's giant-sized tome, uh, could you give us a summary of White's arguments? I will endeavor to do so. Um, just wanted to make it clear from the outset that um, I have not read his book. So what I'm going to be saying here is a summary based on secondary um, sources. And so if any listeners have read this book um, and want to correct me on any nuance or detail, please feel free to um, send in any messages. Definitely don't want to misrepresent um, uh, Dr. White's views here, but I uh, just want to make that clear. Anyway, um, I'm relatively familiar with the basic arguments because he was not the only one making the, the, them at the time, and it's been made much of since then. So the basic um, thesis is that um, as, as White and others view it, um, is that science and religion have always basically been at each other's throats. That they are in some sense incompatible, overarching, explanatory frameworks of nature. And there's this tendency to sort of totalize science on the one hand and um, religion or dogma on the other and pit them against each other um, in some kind of, you know, um, eternal, like, or like Charles was saying earlier, eternal struggle um, in which invariably religion is the regressive um, bad guy and science is the heroic, triumphant, um, uh, well, hero, I guess. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, so the, that's the basic idea and of at least this, um, of his... Uh, of his book and some of the others of that time that had similar themes like uh, John William Draper's uh, History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science, which came around the same time. Um, in the introduction to, to uh, uh, White's tome, um, he says that in all modern history, interfere and this is quoting, in all modern history, interference with science and the supposed interest of religion, no matter how conscientious such interference may have been, has resulted in the direst evils both to religion and to science, and invariably. And, on the other hand, all untrammeled scientific investigation, 
no matter how dangerous to religion some of its stages may have seemed for the time to be, has invariably resulted in the highest good of both religion and of science. So um, you can tell from that introduction that he's fr how he's going to frame this. One, one, one thing I noticed here is that um, he, he, he tries to, he's not arguing, at least on the face of it, he's not arguing that religion doesn't have a place that it's, you know, we should just get rid of it. Um, he's just saying, stay out of science, is, his, is, is basically his attitude. You go do your religious stuff over there, you stay out of science. Um, and then you can, we all live happily ever after. And there's some shades of, uh, of Stephen Jay Gould's um, non-overlapping magisteria here. There's some early, early inklings of that, maybe some roots of that here. Um, but what he is, though, is saying is that, that when religion messes with science, bad things happen, um, uh, particularly oppression of scientific uh, findings or um, delaying the rise of certain scientific uh, fields and things like that. But um, that science, on the other hand, doesn't, doesn't do that to religion, it's good for religion. So there's this asymmetry. There's not this, um, okay, science may be bad if it interferes with religion, but, and religion may be bad if it interferes with science. There's no, there's no symmetry to this argument. It's all basically science good, religion stay out of it, and, and you'll be okay. And so I find that interesting. Um, yeah, in... Uh uh, in in book one of uh, warfare, he uh, so, uh, puts in his introduction. He, uh, he kind of goes to uh, great pains to say that this is going to end up being beneficial to religion. He uh, says he he describes the separation as um, a healthful dissolving away of this mass of unreason that when 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 they get the two of them together. And, uh, that the stream of religion, pure and undefiled, may flow on broad and clear, a blessing to <laughs> humanity. So, yeah, this this uh, interesting, uh, flowery, uh, lofty language. Oh, so lofty language. Yeah, yeah. So we were talking a bit before the uh, the we started recording about you know is whether or not this sort of lofty language was just commonplace at the time for this kind of writing or if this was something unique or, or at least uh, more more obvious in um, White's writing and I don't think we came to any conclusion <laughs> about that so if any if any listeners know about our, our experts in the 19th century uh, scientific or or nonfiction or writing or what otherwise that can tell us whether this kind of flowery and lofty language is typical We'd be interested. Yeah, to I'd that. have to go uh, uh, break out my William James to see if uh, there is this same oh, you know, sure. uh, overblown language uh, going on. Mm -hmm. here. Yeah. So, um, so there's some uh, to get back to the the question. There's some uh, lots of examples that are given in this book, and again, um, I haven't read the book, but. Um, but, but there's the list of, actually, interestingly enough, the list of usual suspects, which we'll get to later, because uh, as far, when we get to start talking about the uh, modern-day legacy of this book. But he talks about, on the one hand, um, uh, Genesis, 
versus the, the then fairly new um, science of evolution and about how there was there's been there was a lot of opposition early on to um, the from the church to to evolutionary theory from Darwin um, and then how later on um, theologians and and other religious leaders started to be, you know basically start uh, what's the word compromising or or saying okay you know evolution's okay you know and basically modifying their views to incorporate this new science so that's one example he also talks about flat versus spherical earth um, how m uh, many religious arguments um, were that were taking some of the uh, ancient cosmologies quite literally and you know considering the you know the dome over the over the earth as being this solid firmament over a flat um, earth and then as uh, as a scientific investigation starts turning up lots of evidence for spherical earth there was some opposition to that uh, we can go on and on one of the big ones here though is um, the whole Galileo yeah, he devotes several chapters uh, to Galileo. and, and uh, that's one thing we have talked about on this podcast uh, previously and in fact our um, icon for our podcast is a is a painting of Galileo at the Inquisition so um, that's something that we won't I won't uh, go over too much but just to briefly to remind people if they're not familiar with this um, affair was Galileo was one of the um, earliest of what or some would say even the father of modern science. He was one of the earliest what we could call quintessentially modern scientists. And uh, he um, had found a um, some e new evidence with his telescope that um, in fact the heliocentric model which had been put forth by Copernicus um, was, was correct as opposed to the what was had been uh, here to up to that point, the Ptolemaic system, which was that the Earth was the center of the solar system, um, and actually at that time they didn't have any conception of anything outside the solar system, so literally the center of the universe, um, and there was some opposition to this, um, chiefly by the by the Catholic Church. And uh, long story short, Galileo um, uh, wrote a big uh, tome about uh, this his findings and and uh, supporting Copernicus's vision um, he put in a a uh, character in that that was ba a very thinly veiled re uh, portrayal of the Pope as as a simpleton which as you might imagine really ticked the Pope off um, some of that later on led to his house arrest and which he was under house arrest for the uh, rest of his life and uh, heliocentrism was was uh, deemed a heresy or at least potentially heretical I'm not sure of the this, the details of that but um, this was a this plays a big role in this sort of conflict thesis that we're talking about is this hey look there's this guy who is being actively persecuted by the church for promoting um, new scientific findings and then later on the church says, oh yeah, you're right, Galileo's right, you know, sun is the center of the solar system, you know, we were wrong. And this sort of theme keeps repeating. It's like, okay, um, science comes up with this new stuff, new findings, religious um, people uh, resist it for, because their sacred texts say, no, that can't be right. And then later on, when it's no longer possible to, to deny it, then they say, oh yeah, it's right. 
you know, after all. And so basically there's this theme of, of, of religion just giving more and more ground to science. And science basically, so to, in keeping with the war metaphor, science is basically occupying more and more territory and religion is getting squashed to the margins and, and uh, continually in retreat. That's, that's the portrayal that White is, is, is giving here in this and there's plenty of other things that he talks that he gives other examples from many other fields of science uh, including um, uh, geology with the flood um, human origins uh, antiquity of human humanity versus the the um, the time scales in um, in the Bible and others and physics and chemistry supplanting uh, magic and alchemy um, medicine supplanting uh, he faith healing etc mental disorders uh, instead of uh, demon possession and so on and so on so that's a that's a fair that's just a basic rundown of that what we're getting at here um, and we also can't forget that one of his uh, contemporaries one of white's contemporaries John William Draper who wrote a similar volume called the history of the conflict between religion and science and his take on this was that science, the history of science, was not a mere record, this is quoting, not a mere record of isolated discoveries. It is a narrative of the conflict of two contending powers, the expansive force of the human intellect on the one side and the compression arising from traditionary faith and human interest on the other. So very much in keeping with this, this conflict theme. So uh, everything to say about that, Charles? Um, well, it's interesting that uh, he uses the word narrative since uh, that's something that uh, mm -hmm. a, a lot of people have uh, uh, gone to when talking about White's approach, how uh, White sets forth a narrative and then uh, makes uh, the facts fit the narrative. And if they don't fit the narrative, he will make them fit the narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's 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 um, uh, to be fair is as a very common and very uh, strong temptation when writing about something you feel strongly about is to well we call it confirmation bias right. is to 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 just uh, lots of different and it, all of us can can fall to this but it certainly seems from what many uh, scholars have and I'm stepping <laughs> on your toes here so. But um, what many scholars have uh, criticized White's work is basically, you know, counting all the hits, you know, and uh, ignoring all of the misses or ignoring all of the arguments against his thesis, or at least that don't fit in with that narrative. One thing um, I uh, have I noticed in that quote from uh, from Draper is he he. He tries to set it up as this, you know, dichotomy, right? You got the the expansive force of the human intellect on the one side, and then the compression arising from traditionary faith and human interest on the other. So you have this pitting of human intellect and human right. interests, which I found really odd, actually, because it seems to me that there's a lot of human interest in cultivating the intellect. And so he's almost like he's saying, oh, well, human interests are against human intellect, and human intellect is somehow this pure, um, you know, unvarnished, right. un, yeah. you know, that doesn't have any uh, um, 
isn't tainted at all by what I, I'm gathering what he means by human interest is being like uh, emotional or or other ways of uh, other motivations. I don't know, but I just I thought that was kind of an odd juxtaposition, an odd setting one against the other. I think that's that's t that that kind of attitude though has carried on to the present day. I guess it is. I, I mean, later. how many times have we uh, heard the word disinterested? Uh, when describing science, you know, the, the yeah. disinterested pursuit of truth. Right, right. And, uh, yeah, um, which gets awfully hard to sustain when we start taking a look at things like funding and affiliation and social pressures. Uh, uh, you know, that there is a reason why fields like the history of science and the sociology of science and the psychology of science exist. Uh, this radical dichotomy that Draper's putting forward has never existed and does not exist. Uh, e even as, you know, even in an idealized form, it, it it's just has never been. Mm -hmm. <coughs> well, you mentioned uh, scholarly reaction uh, to White's conflict thesis. Uh, so I'll go ahead and say a few words about that. Um, uh, White's thesis uh, fit well with uh, the academic mood of uh, several corners of the Victorian era. Uh, a number of scholars believed that faith and science were in a constant state of war. Uh, so hi history of warfare, uh, it did not get the same popular um, success as Draper's book. Uh, not terribly surprising since we're talking about you know two volumes over 900 pages. Uh, but uh, it was successful as an uh, academic work. It was translated into several language, uh, languages. It was initially appreciated uh, by its uh, target audience. Uh, so the late 19th, early 20th century uh, scholar George Sarton, uh, who is considered the founder of the history of science, uh, was apparently quite a fan, uh, as was the uh, 20th century historian uh, Bruce Maslisch. Uh, the appeal of White's writing was exactly this strong narrative uh, that he advanced. And, so, um, and one of the reasons why these uh, this two-volume set goes to such a length is because it's an impressively long list of historical scenes that he sets up uh, in support of this uh, dramatic conflict. Uh, and yes, the, the, language, <coughs> the language that he employed uh, was very dramatic language. He talks about uh, the, uh, the, the discovery of a truth by a scientist and the howls of outrage and flames of oppression uh, and the war that rages across Europe uh, and the, the, you know, the, the fist of a... And these are, these are quotes, right? Fist of oppression. Not, no. um, yeah. Um, not paraphrasing. Well, Those are said, actually quotes. I don't quotes. know if he said fist of oppression, but the, you know, the the flames and the war and the howls of rage. Howls of rage is definitely a direct quote. Um, mm -hmm. Well, that's just more example of this kind of like flowery polemical yes, language we were talking yeah. about. Um, so, yeah, not not the kind of language that we would expect in uh, you know twenty uh, first century academic writing. Um, you know, a as history, though, uh, White's uh, work has been severely challenged. 
um, looking, you know, a, a lot of it has looked at the factual content of this long list of historical scenes. <clears throat> I'm actually reminded of uh, a scene from the, uh, the 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 film My Cousin Vinny. Uh, Joe Joe Pesci plays <laughs> a uh, defense attorney, and uh, it's been oh, so yeah, long since I've seen that movie. Hilarious movie. Uh, hilarious movie. Day, yeah. My wife and I um, use the word Utes. Uh, <laughs> uh, so he uh, Joe Pesci's character describes his strategy for dealing with uh, the prosecutor's case against his client. Uh, he says, uh, "Building a case is like building a house." Uh, and I'm going to restrain myself and try to not do a Joe Pesci impression with this. Uh, each piece of evidence <laughs> that might yeah, be just might another be building block. Put that in your back pocket. He wants to make a brick bunker of a building. He wants to use serious, solid-looking bricks. And so then uh, Pesci's character he holds up a playing card. He says, "He's going to show you these bricks. He'll show you they've got straight lines." He'll show you how they've got the right shape. He'll show them to you in a special way so that they appear to have everything a brick should have. But there's one thing he's not going to show you. And so then he takes the playing card and he turns it to its side uh, and says, when you look at the bricks from the right angle, they're as thin as this playing card. His whole case is an illusion, a magic trick. Hmm. So scholarly response to White's argument was a bit like Joe Pesci. Um, So White Mm. presented many cases in which it looked like the forces of truth and reason were being opposed by the forces of obscurantism and ignorance, case after case after case after case. Uh, But what he had done uh, was uh, to grossly oversimplify complex situations to the point of misrepresentation, uh, ignoring everything that didn't fit his conceptual scheme uh, forcing what uh, he did address uh, to fit into a box that it didn't really fit. <coughs> so he used uh, specific instances of disagreement between a scientist and a religious non-scientist as proof that there was a fundamental conflict between pure science and pure theology. Um, don't want to go really into current politics, uh, but I'll just leave this for the listener. Uh, think about the number of things, a uh, number of times that we have lately seen uh, people, you know, very loudly and publicly claim that they are taking pure, uh, principled stances for these eternal moral truths, um, when in reality we're looking at, you know, partisan grandstanding. <coughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. So when we yep. when we see a conflict be- between two individuals. That might, you know, there may be more politics and personality and infighting uh, and uh, you know, outgroup bias and all that stuff going on um, more than uh, sort of the, 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 this reified uh, ideal uh, pitted against another reified abstract ideal. Right. It's sort of it's basically the fallacy of of, of overgeneralization, where you take specific instances and extrapolate that to the whole. Um, and I mean, this is just you know very common fallacy. It just for whatever reason it captured uh, the minds of lots of people and at this time. It's very effective if 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 done if done well, it but is. it's still a fallacy. 
least an informal yeah. fallacy. And that's what he did with Galileo. He did that with Kepler, with Newton. I mean, um, <coughs> as you mentioned in your summary, I mean, he even pulls out the old idea that uh, uh, before Columbus, we thought the Earth was flat. Uh, and sailors were scared to right. sail or lest, lest they fall off the disc, um, which mm-hmm. was not the case. So, um, we're at the point now uh, where White's conflict thesis is generally considered by academic historians to be thoroughly discredited. Uh, they've been replaced by more complex theories, uh, emphasizing mm-hmm. the... Uh, uh, well, the, the complexity uh, of the relationship between uh, faith and science and between religious institutions and scientific institutions uh, and the supporting role that the church has taken uh, in the development of science. Uh, so, you know, quoting uh, Alistair McGrath, uh, it says, there is no master narrative uh, which describes the relationship between science and religion. <coughs> yeah, oh, I like um, that. Be- yeah. I mean, what you see when you take a look at the history of science is that it's, you know, it's the history of, you know, some, sometimes we've got people um, promoting science, sometimes we've got people opposing science, sometimes we have church organizations promoting science, sometimes we have uh, church organizations and church officials, uh, you know, uh, uh, opposing science. Uh, it, uh, <coughs> yeah, it... Uh, um, religion has, I mean, religion, I'll say religious people. Religious people have been both promoting science and opposing science at every point. So this idea that yep. we have this grand conflict between the two things uh, doesn't fit the facts. Uh, one of the interesting mm-hmm. things that I've seen, we're going to talk uh, in a couple of minutes about um uh, how White's thesis has been uh, represented in uh, some of the current popular debates. But uh, one interesting thing that I have seen, (coughs) um, responding to all of this academic criticism of uh, White's work as a historian, uh, I've seen some claiming that uh, while White's facts may have been wrong, his argument is right. Right. due to faith and reason being contradictory epistemologies. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that's well, good. yeah. yeah. So Go ahead. I'll, I'll direct but, listeners uh, back to episode four uh, of this podcast in which we dealt with uh, faith and reason. Uh, so this is uh, right. it's, it's kind of a, a shifting of uh, tactics because White is trying to make his argument as a historian. He says, if you take a look at history, uh, yes, we got this, yes. we got this, we got this, we got this, we got this showing that there is this underlying conflict and that historians have come along and said, no, we right. don't have that, we don't have that, we don't have that, and we don't have that other thing. Or we do, but yeah. we also have this. That That's a counterexample. Right, yeah. Yeah, I, um, I, if you weren't going to point that out, I was going to. But it's, I think that's a very key point that you just made, um, that there's really two different arguments being made here. And they're getting conflated yes. a lot of times. Like you said, White's was a historical argument. It's like, look, here's all these examples of how religion has suppressed science and, and how science has eventually broken free and shown religion was wrong. And so that's the basic idea. And here's all these examples. That's a historical argument. Um, 
then in on the other hand you have and I don't know maybe white did this too but more modern more modern uh, uh, promulgators of this uh, that works is that a word promulgator yeah promulgators of this narrative of this conflict thesis um, tend to yeah they, they will they will cite historical examples they'll cite Galileo they'll cite uh, Giordano Bruno etc but they also they tend to focus more on this philosophical argument right that oh no it's just the very nature of scientific investigation is completely at odds with religious nature there's this there's this idea that science is this like what we're saying dispassionate it cares about the truth it doesn't care about authority it, it brooks no authoritative figures it's just about um who um what nature reveals to us through our through our systematic investigations um and if something comes in conflict with conflict with that then you know tough you know and uh on the other hand religion is seen as this sort of authoritative uh top-down approach to okay be you know basically saying this is true about the world just because our sacred text says so or or this so-and-so leader said so etc and the argument this is the argument is that those very those different approaches are incompatible and so it's not based on any historical argument although it could be supported by that it's it's really a philosophical argument um, and so that's something that's key here and I think those get those get conflated and or they're just not well distinguished so something to keep in mind um uh so uh <clears throat> you know turning you know turning to the way that we've seen this uh argument used uh i mean as we know the scholarly quality of an argument uh may or may not have any relationship to the popular influence of that argument uh so dan uh, how have you seen white's conflict thesis continuing to influence current popular level debate uh on topics relating to science and religion Okay, so, yeah. Um, well, it's obviously very much alive and well, the conflict thesis, at least in the popular level. So there's, there's many prominent popularizers of science out there that continue to propagate this thesis. Um, and oftentimes they'll do so very cavalierly, as if it's just obvious and indisputable. Um, or they, others may not refer to it explicitly, but they more or less, if you read their stuff employ it as this sort of underlying assumption that religion somehow gets in the way of science let's stay out keep it out uh, of of the way and uh so i think it's very very common and large to a large part due to a lot of uh, popular popularizers of science um that are out there and you know i'll give you some you know examples we have of course the late carl sagan was um was a some somewhat of a proponent proponent of this thesis um, not as strident as some of his successors have been. And we have, of course, Richard Dawkins, um, uh, who's done this quite a bit. Um, Peter Atkins, uh, um, <clears throat> Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, Stephen Hawking even, uh, in, his, uh, in, his more, uh, in, in his later life has been, do has been more down on this conflict thesis. His earlier writings, not so much. And uh, so it's it's very much out there. It's very popular, and these and these are big guys. These are, you know, smart 
people and they do in my opinion at least do a great job of popularizing science so it's hard when they start talking about and propagating this conflict thesis um you know people who will see see their science popularization it's hard to for them to to realize oh these people are now suddenly wearing a different hat and now they're pop now they're talking about a philosophical a larger philosophical point and that that the science that they're pro that they are popularizing doesn't necessitate this conflict thesis and so that's one reason why i think it's pretty popular is because a lot of folks don't they they just seem to assume that science you know is by nature going to be uh, opposed to religion um and so that continues to 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 roll down the, the hill that way um so but then on the other side you have um you know religious folks who may not you know who aren't maybe as well trained in science or that they they will they'll accept this thesis too and they'll come back with a retort saying well um the bible says it i believe it, and that settles it kind of you know attitude and so they 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 buy that that framework they buy that narrative and they work within that narrative to fight against it and so then that just perpetuates so um my opinion is that it's sort of the self-perpetuating thesis regardless of how like we you've talked about how many scholars uh, his, historical scholars have discredited as being way too simplistic it still lives on particularly in our current political and cultural climate which is much more about let's get the loudest voices and the angriest voices out there and that's what sells that's entertainment and we don't need any you know reasoned um uh calm focused debate about things we're just going to propagate this warfare model and that's true on so many other topics pol political or otherwise this warfare um, metaphor it just has ba seems like it's almost taken over everything so it's kind of interesting I wasn't planning on talking about that but it's kind of interesting how this this sort of warfare model has has erupted into uh, this sort of all-encompassing cultural I don't know milieu backdrop you know for almost everything we talk about these days uh, I don't know what, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of depressing, but, <laughs> um, but okay, so there's that. Um, but I think another reason that sticks around, and let's just be honest here, um, is that it's the conflict thesis isn't completely wrong. It's in fact partly true. Um, I, my real problem with it, and this is me speaking personally, um, is, is not that I see it as wrong as much as it's, way too simplistic and you know I think we've already hinted at this and I think that's the view of a lot of scholars both both uh, religious and non-religious historical historians of science and religion um, they they they're not so much saying okay this is just completely wrong there's n you know never any conflict with science and religion etc it's more like no 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 that's just way too simplistic it doesn't fit as you said as this to totalizing overarching narrative that explains everything so um but we have to we have to re realize that there is a kernel sometimes a relatively large kernel of truth to it and that's another reason why it's still very popular so, um, 
yeah, uh, I think we just need to keep that in mind. And I mean, maybe we'll get to this in our final question. So I'll leave it. I'll leave uh, the rest of what I had to say about that for that. But well, uh, well actually, let's let, let's use this as an opportunity to go to that last question. <coughs> so, uh, yeah. All right. As Christians who work in the sciences, and, and we have talked about this in several other episodes, uh, we tend to be okay with our Christianity and our science uh, existing in the same universe. Uh, so the con- we, you know, we would uh, tend to reject the conflict hypothesis, uh, and it can get a little irritating when we see uh, this broke-down, discredited historical theory uh, being put forward. Uh, so, uh, the next question this is going to so, yeah, be for both of us. Uh, how can we and how can our listeners uh, respond to those who put forward this thesis? Well, why don't, why don't you go ahead? I'd, I'd be interested to hear what you had to say, and then I'll, and I'll leave. <coughs> uh, well, I mean, at, on, a per, on a personal level, I have to uh, respond with self-restraint, uh, given my somewhat pugnacious personality and uh, argumentative nature. Um, Warfare models in general tend to appeal to me because my response to most obstacles is uh, Hulk smash. Uh, So I need to restrain myself for that and try to focus on a uh, somewhat more um, gentle (laughs) and respectful and reasoned approach. Uh, and I think part of that uh, flows from the comment that you had made about there being some truth uh, to the conflict thesis. And I mean, when, when we say embrace complexity, uh, and it's um, not as, simp- uh, as simple as uh, these two domains that are eternally at war with each other, uh, it, it does remain uh, important uh, for us to remember that, yes, conflicts have occurred. They have occurred between um, specific people. Uh, there have been uh, social structures that have got, uh, been involved here where uh, you know, uh, one organization uh, and the, the people and the resources have been brought to bear against another organization. Uh, there are social forces uh, involved. There are institutional conflicts. Um, there have been specific theories that have been put forward um, that conflict with other theories. So there, there have been some specific theological theories uh, that conflict with specific uh, scientific theories. So uh, an awareness that conflict has and does sometimes happen uh, is an important part of that. Uh, and yes, we should try to resist the polarizing uh, temptations of our current climate, uh, which uh, try to um, uh, motivate us to uh, form up into our teams and start uh, verbally blasting each other as uh, not just uh, misinformed about the details of the situation, but uh, some combination of stupid, crazy, and evil. Right. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, so, yeah, for my part, I, I, I completely agree with what you said. I think that... Um, one of the things that we we should do um, when we respond to this is to not immediately dismiss it. So be honest, there has been conflict. Uh, I think the key here is, I think Mark Knoll makes this point in a series of blog posts 
about uh, uh, which we will uh, link to in the show book. notes, listeners. Um, yes, these are some blog blog posts on the BioLogos website, but he uh, makes a point that his, his one big problem that he lists a bunch of problems with the uh, white's warfare perspective and one of his big problems is uh what he calls runaway essentialism so uh here's a here's a quote from this post here there is not and never has been an abstract science capital s and an abstract dogmatic theology <laughs> capital d and t locked in mortal conflict Disagreements of all kinds involving many aspects of religion and theology have certainly taken place, but since such instances are very far from constituting an essentialist conflict between an essentialized science, again, capital S, and an essentialized, capital T, theology. So I think he hits the nail on the head there. I think that really is what I would start with, if I, if, and I have done this, and I've, I'm, I have many colleagues and, and good friends and colleagues uh, in, in the sciences who... Um, who accept some form or the other of this conflict thesis as a matter of course. And I try to, you know, not say, oh, well, no, there's no conflict. I say, yeah, there is, but it's not an essential conflict. It's not that um, by its very nature there's this abstract overarching thing called science, you know, that explanatory framework, whatever you want to call it, worldview, etc., and there's and versus this theology or religion or dogma dogmatism or, or whatever you want to call it, um, that there's this essential nature to these two spheres, and so there's going to be some essential uh, uh, aspect of them that's going to cause these two to come in conflict. It's just not possible to to uh, do that with any uh, level of coherence when you elevate it to. Um, this all-encompassing nature so we need to we need to get into the trenches here and it's not an easy conversation it's not easy discussion because it's hard to pin down what exactly we're talking about a lot of times uh and uh i think just just sort of leading from this idea that oh wait it's very complicated you know uh, not denying that there's these these problems that come up in specific instances, and you and I can both list our favorite ones. You know, um, one of one that I get irritated with, uh, to be honest, is uh, when it comes to uh, climate science. I mean, there may be lots of legitimate scientific reasons to doubt certain claims by the climate science consensus uh, for anthropogenic global warming. My my view is that there's pretty good evidence scientifically that it's happening and that the, that humans have been causing a lot of it. But I recognize that there is a legitimate scientific, uh, you know, debate to be had about certain aspects of that. And 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 people who want to do that, by all means, that's how science goes forward. So I don't have a problem with that. Um, but a lot of times, what you'll see though is is certain people in the religious community. And thankfully, it's not super widespread, but I have seen this, is that they'll say, well, you know, we can't really do anything. Humans can't cause this kind of warming. We can't because, you know, the earth was created by God and, and God controls it. And who are we to think that we humans, puny humans, can, can, can match that or affect that? Uh, some variation of that argument, which is essentially a religious-based argument. And they'll use that to essentially dismiss any of the uh, science 
scientific findings coming out of uh, climate science. Uh, so that's an example, I think, of where there's a, there's, a there's a direct challenge from a religious argument to a scientific argument that, you know, in my view, is problematic at best. Uh, so I think that's, that, that, that would be an example I would give. Um, if listeners want to ha offer other ones or they want to say that, that I'm wrong, and please, please feel free to do so, we'd happy to have that conversation. Um, so I, I, would, uh, I would encourage people to, um, you know, take a step back from the fray, ask yourself, why, why are we even using this, conf this uh, warfare metaphor anyway? Is, are there better metaphors we can use that will yield more fruitful discussion, that will get, give us more insights um, to the actual, the actual reality of how complex the relationship is between religion and science? And if you're coming at it from, from a religious perspective where you're, you feel like that um, science is, you know, encroaching or, or trying to explain things that, you know, religion used to explain. In other words, if you're sort of buying into that, that narrative, be, don't be afraid of that, you know. Be, be willing to say, okay, yeah, this has happened at times. But you know you don't have to give away the store by doing so. I guess that would be my my basic uh, uh, my basic. Uh, right. Alistair McGrath that, uh, prefers conversation as his uh, his go to term. Yeah. Yep. Uh, all right. Um, we sure. are starting to come up on the one hour mark. Uh, so I think this is as uh, good a time as any to start wrapping things up. <coughs> um, Topic for next episode uh, is a mystery because as in our rotation of who gets to pick uh, what topic uh, we are covering, uh, Todd is up for next uh, episode for his choice. And since uh, we are currently toddless, uh, we will have to wait and see what we're looking forward to. Uh, in the meantime... Uh, so uh, the well, we'll just uh, say goodbye at this point. Uh, the Book of Nature is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our intern is Sway Jimenez. So on behalf of Dan Dawson and Todd Pedler, I am Charles Hackney, thanking you for joining us for another hour or so of inquiring into the Book of Nature. If you like the episode, send us an email, find us on Facebook, leave a comment at the website, leave a review at iTunes. Uh, so look for us next time when Todd will be leading our discussion on something. Uh, until then, listeners, I leave you with these words of wisdom from Forrest Griffin. Never scramble a can of tuna with egg whites, because it will make your entire house smell like dead fish for at least a month. Your, your cats go crazy. It's just not a good idea. Goodbye, all. <laughs>